Journalist Amy Maguire has been one of the fiercest advocates for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in relation to their treatment in the criminal justice system and especially as victims of crime. A Durrambul and South Sea Islander from Rockhampton, she has had over 12 years' experience working across a range of media organisations. She has also undertaken a PhD with the topic The Silence Everyone Talks About, Media Representations of Violence Against Aboriginal Women. Last on the show to talk about her recent book, Daybreak, Amy, welcome back to Speaking Out. Hi, Lewis. It's so good to be here. Just before we dive into your PhD and its very important research, how did the book go? I think it went really well. Like I had a lot of, um, I mean, the really great thing is that I would get contacted by a lot of parents of children, Indigenous and non-Indigenous children, um, about how they could speak about the violence of Australia Day, but in ways that really um, privilege the strength of Aboriginal families. So I was really happy with that. But I think the best thing about it is that my kids still read it. <laughs> so it's like one of our, sometimes it's one of our nightly books along with like Ceremony by Adam Goods. But my, my daughter's actually gone more to the Adam Goods book now. So. But, um, yeah, it's been really good um, just seeing the reception and the continuing reception to it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, I have to ask you, as such an accomplished investigative journalist who is already researching a lot and writing a lot, what made you decide to undertake a PhD? I really was, um, at the time, I was a young single mother. Um, and so I was actually approached by Chelsea Wadigo, who's one of my supervisors, and she's just a really big supporter of young black women and the work of young black women, I think. And so she sort of said, you know, as you're raising children, you should do a PhD. And so that's how it started. <laughs> really. <laughs> she makes, so she makes really it sound like it's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took a whole year and a bit to actually get enrolled in everything because um, of the bureaucracy. But other than that, it was, yeah, that was basically how it started. And then it sort of grew to something else, you know, like a foundation for where I want to take my work. So I think it was really important that she was able to support me in that um, and just really indebted to her. I think a lot of people don't understand that when someone undertakes a PhD, there is a lot of intellectual work to be done, which I think everyone assumes. But actually, it's also quite a big emotional journey because unlike other bits of research, you're kind of there all on your own. It's your work. You're you're adrift on a sea of your own ideas. Um, How did you cope with that? Um, It was a journey, I think, because I think it's taken me about four years and in the middle of that, you know, COVID and a whole other host of things happened. But um, it really was just the opportunity to answer questions that I had been thinking about for like 16 years around ideas of how we report on violence against Aboriginal women. And so it was almost just giving me the space and the time to think more deeply and um, develop my thoughts around that um, as sort of a framework to continue forward. So I think it was good because it does give you that space and that autonomy um, to be able to to do that, which I didn't have before because often, obviously, as a journalist, you're always sort of um, on the run, like going from one thing to another. So I think just having that space to do a, like a really long-form project, yeah, I mean, 
it's incredibly valuable and it's something that doesn't come around a lot <laughs> at yeah. all. I, actually, as you're saying that, I can understand that. I've, you know, as you know, I've I've always followed your journalism. I, I think you're one of the best First Nations journalists we have and one of the best journalists in the country. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you framed the research question? Like what was the actual question you honed down to yeah. um, research and how you went about researching it? Yeah, so it really started with a story I was doing in my hometown. It's one I've talked about a lot. And it was based around an Aboriginal woman who died by violence on the banks of Tunaba, which is the Fitzroy River. Um, and the reason we were doing that story is because the man who was given a life sentence, um, we found a lot of evidence to say that he's innocent, um, Kevin Henry. But throughout the time I was doing the story, I was always really confused because of the way um, the victim, whose name is Linda, um, and that's how her family want us to speak about her. The acts of violence that were done to her were very extreme, but I felt that they'd been re-perpetrated in the media portrayals and the court portrayals of her. So in ways that just focused on the wounds of her body and denied her personhood. Um, but there was a, so I really questioned the ethics of even doing a story like that. But the reason that I felt compelled to was because at the time Kevin was still sitting in, in jail in Etna Creek in Rockhampton. And so, that question really emerged from that story. How do we um, tell stories of violence without re-perpetrating the violence or recompounding the violence? So that was sort of the central question. And, you know, throughout my journalism career sort of began in the midst of the moral panic around um, child sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities, which um, laid the groundwork for the anti-intervention. Um, and so I was always really conflicted about the ways in which violence was spoken of because I didn't feel like there was a safe space for Aboriginal women to actually speak about violence in the ways they wanted to speak about because it was a very limited and unsafe space which could lead to these really horrendous and racist policy responses. So a real part of it was what was the silences or what was being silenced. Um, and I discovered as I started looking into silences and what was being silenced was that there was this emerging issue, but an issue we've all known about for a very long time, around disappeared Aboriginal women. So Aboriginal women who've died by violence and in which there's never been any justice for. And there's a lot of research over in obviously Canada and America around missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. But we didn't have that framework to speak on it here. And I felt it because it was because of the way the mainstream media in particular limits the ways we speak about violences through this silence. And specifically the way they, they claim there is a silence that Aboriginal women and Aboriginal communities are responsible for breaking and not their own constructed silence, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so it sort of like became this, once I understood what was being silenced, it became very different to what I originally envisioned um, it was going to be. And it's really just, you know, me trying to figure out a way to do it in my own practice and ethically and responsibly and ways I can be accountable um, to particularly Aboriginal women who have died but also um, their families and Aboriginal women across the country. So it really just became about that. And so it's like, it's not just this PhD, it's something I'm hoping to continue working on. And that's just sort of like the framework I want to speak about it in. Yeah, so that's what it ended up being. I, I really love that. And I, I think that's often the path that people go through with a PhD that they think it's going to be one thing. <laughs> and then it turns out to be something else. Because if you didn't learn something that 
kind of changed your outlook or perspective. Why why would you you bother doing that? But yeah. now that you've been through this um, research and and um, had the time to really think about these issues, you've mentioned that it's something that you think will change the way that you do your own practice as a journalist, which I have to say has always been incredibly sensitive to victims of crime and really has tried to bring back the humanity of people who have uh, been victims of violence or, you know, particularly if murder victims, deaths in custody, etc. Are you hoping there'll be a broader impact for this kind of work? Yeah, like I really wanted to provide some sort of um, framework, particularly for like younger black journalists as well, to be able to report on it. So I think one of the things is when you're going to like inquests and trials, but like currently, you know, these these get not just um, cases of Aboriginal women who died, but also death in custodies, it always seems to only go to inquest. You know what I mean? But when you sit in the coronial inquest, there are all these different layers of violence and it's very hard to report on the actual violence of the process um, in ways that aren't, just aren't repeating that violence. So that was a big part of it is trying to um, build something like a sovereign black media to be able to report on these um, cases in the way they should be reporter on um you know what I mean and the big thing for me was realizing that um like our forms of journalism aren't just for the public interest they're actually directly for the fight of Aboriginal communities so it's actually a weapon like a gift back to black communities you know an arm of activism rather than just like you know trying to tell these stories um for mainstream Australia they actually have to have a purpose you know for use in the wider fight so I think that was the main thing um, that I realised, you know, because I think mainstream media is, well, I always knew that in a sense that mainstream media was always violent, um, but just bringing up and trying to provide space for a sovereign black media that can speak back to that violence um, in really, in ways that don't dehumanise um, Aboriginal women particularly again, and also make visible the violence of the justice system, you know, and the processes of the justice system in every way that we've seen it, you know what I mean? So because I think often the way it's reported, it's it's concealed that those levels of violence are really concealed. Um, yeah, so I think that was one of the main things I took from it. And it's not like an end, like it's not completely finished yet, you know what I mean? Like it's going to be something that continually changes because the other thing I realised is that every story sort of changes you in a way. Um, and and um, makes you realise certain things, particularly around the resistance of families and what they do to, you know, presence their loved ones in the absence. Um, and so I think that it's a continual thing that's going to continually change and there's sort of no end to it as you become immersed in the stories and um, in ways that you are not, you don't have ownership of a story. So there's this thing in journalism where people always want to claim exclusivity and break exclusives. Like I sort of see this as you're not, you don't have ownership of any story, but you have, you're given a right to tell a story. You know what I mean? So those are the sort of main things that have come out of just that long journey for me. Um, it's just like that ethics of, of journalism founded in black sovereign media rather than just appealing to white media or mainstream media. I really um, find it interesting to hear you speak that way. And it does remind me that I think one of the things that I've, felt I've learned from the way that you cover stories is that the way you tell a fight for justice from a family seeking it is really reflective of the fact that these campaigns are not driven 
by anger, but they're driven by love. Oh, definitely. And that seems to be a very First Nations understanding of what drives people. You did touch on something that I just want to pick up on again, and you mentioned that when you were doing this PhD and looking at this really important question, that there were other issues that came up for you. And I've noticed this is a bit of a theme with PhD students that when they get, particularly when they get closer to the end and they've got lots of big ideas um, floating around and you can only put so much into this one document, um, that there are all these threads that are still there to be picked up on. What are some of those um, ideas or questions that have been raised for you doing this research that you think might be something that you might look at after you finish the, the PhDs behind you when you've got a chance to do some more research? The big thing that really changed was at the end of the PhD, I started to sit in on the inquests of Aboriginal women who'd been disappeared in Queensland and Queensland specifically. And so in Queensland, we've had over the past year um, three inquests into the disappearances and the deaths of Aboriginal women that were totally disconnected from each other. Um, And two of those inquests are still continuing. Um, They had just totally, like, you don't even hear about them. Like, there are all these silences that sort of engulf these stories and the inquests never lead to widespread media coverage in ways that really absolve... um, the police for their failure to find them and the courts to deliver justice. And so I started to think about the framework of disappearance and disappearing Aboriginal women, and that totally changed everything I'd previously thought in the past year. (laughs) Um, And so that was the main one. And I think we're at a time, like, we've got the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in the Senate, Um, but there's also a bit more focus on it from Aboriginal women journalists particularly, and that's something I think we need, like, an actual focus on the numbers of disappeared Aboriginal women and why the police are refusing, like they're not just failing, they're refusing to search for them and they're refusing to deliver any form of justice to the families. And if you talk to any um, mob in any community, they'll always have an anecdotal story about a woman who had died and there'd never been any follow-up or this long history of injustice. And so I feel like that's something that just hasn't been at the moment properly focused on, but it is something that we're going to start, like, continue focusing on. And it's not to say that Aboriginal women weren't talking about it or Aboriginal communities weren't talking about it previously, Um, but that's what I just started to think about, like, how we speak about it in in ways that um, give us that framework in which to speak about it, which it doesn't just come back to these old templates around violence against Aboriginal women or black-on-black crime or the violence of Aboriginal communities. Like, there's a distinct thing that's happening where, Um, Aboriginal women are being deliberately disappeared. You know what I mean? And so that's something that I think um, I'll continue to work on. And it it has, what I've found also is there's a direct link with the carceral systems where um, obviously the jails and the watch houses are disappearing Aboriginal women as well. Um, And there's these direct links between how Aboriginal women are criminalised and then when they're deemed missing, um, they're still seen as criminal. And so I think that's some of the the things that I think need to be more, you know, looked into. And it's something like I'm really hoping to focus on in the future um, through different ways, I guess, like through building networks, through talking to more people um, and through building a community. You know what I mean? Like it's not just one person doing it or looking into it. Like I feel like all there's so many, um, particularly Aboriginal women all around the country who all have the threads of how this is happening. And so just bringing that all together in some way, I think needs to be really important Um, and ensuring that, you know, we have that framework 
Um, and it sits alongside a lot of the activism for Black deaths in custody as well, because I see them as as very similar. Well, they're, they're the same sort of like practices of settler colonialism, like it's tied to that genocidal continuum of what's been happening in this country in which Aboriginal women have been targeted. So like I talk about, you know, this the scholarship, like your scholarship, Larissa, is all through my PhD as well. So it's like we have all of these this insight from all people all across the country. And so I think it's just like building those networks and build, building those knowledge break um, basis and bringing it all together, um, which I'm really hoping to focus on afterwards. I think it's been, a, as you say, a, a big development that there is now a language, your work, Chelsea Wadigo's work, there are more and more uh, people who are um, articulating this issue. There's currently a federal government inquiry into missing and murdered First Nations women and children. What do you hope it might achieve? Um, I don't know if I'm, like, I'm glad that it is being looked at in that way. But I think, you know, um, when you look at the lessons as well of the um, inquiry over in Canada, so the National Inquiry, there was a lot of, like, scholarship and um, groundwork that went in and activism that went into building that inquiry over there. And it's something that we unfortunately haven't had a chance or haven't built as much over here. And so some of the terms of references for the National Inquiry is quite limited, I feel, to like around police protocol and data sets. And one of the things I critique about like the police data is that often um, it's always going to be limited because um, one, they, they haven't been counting, but also how they their categorizations of missing and murdered Aboriginal women is really, um, it's really limited as well. So even Judy Atkinson was talking about like three decades ago where Aboriginal women's deaths were being deemed as natural causes even before any investigation. And there's been cases across the country where Aboriginal women's deaths have been seen as, you know, faults of their own. They might have gone walkabout, you know, self-harm or suicide in ways that deny the violence that has been done for them. And those categorizations are based on police investigations that are totally ineffective. So I worry about um, what the national inquiry, what the Senate inquiry can actually deliver. Um, so I think it's actually going to be the groundwork that's done even outside of the inquiry. But using the inquiry as sort of that impetus to focus in on this issue particularly, I think will be really important. And the fact that it's led by two black senators like Senator Dorinda Cox and Senator Lydia Thorpe is also really important. So that's the problem with inquiries. Like we've seen with royal commissions that they often deliver nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think it will do something, but I think the greater work is going to be outside of the spaces of disappearance because Parliament House is the largest space of disappearance we have in this country as well. And so I think the work that's being done outside and in communities um, and by people who are actively resisting this is going to be just as important as the Senate inquiry. Well, it is a good reminder of how important the work in your PhD is too. So are you planning to publish it? Um, hopefully. I've got to see what the mode will be. <laughs> so, But I'm hoping to like, yeah, get a lot of what I've written out there, um, but also just use it as the basis for like the continual practice, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, eventually I do hope to publish a lot of it, um, but I'm just not sure what format yet. <laughs> well, I hope you'll keep us posted. Just finally, though, for any other Blackfellas out there who might be thinking about whether to do a PhD or not, what is your advice? 
Oh, I think definitely consider it and make sure you have a community of supportive mob around you because that's the other thing you have to know is that um, universities are also sites of violence, you know, and it's very important to have your own community within those those spaces and it's really um, important to have a good supervisory team. But there are spaces that are growing at the moment, like I'm currently at Queensland University of Technology and there's a lot of black academics um, who are being fostered and brought in and cared for. So I think like finding the spaces where your work is going to be supported and particularly you're going to be supported and your family is going to be supported is also very important to remember. But definitely consider doing it because I think we need more black fellows in the academy inside and outside of it um, and we need to be doing research for mob you know what I mean whereas traditionally like it's been you know white academics coming in and extracting information like we need black fellows to be doing it for ourselves and for our mob so yeah I think um, anyone out there considering it definitely do it. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us, Amy, and sharing your important work. (laughs) And thank you for all that you're doing to highlight injustice. Journalist, scholar and PhD candidate, soon to be Dr. Amy Maguire.